0: the michael reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie
1: Monday morning the 8th of January good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am this is Michael Reid on LMFM the HSC says uh, there has been no decision on a date to implement the next phase of changes to the emergency service department service at Our ladies' Hospital in Nafn the issue they say will be considered by the CEO and the board of uh, the HSC when they receive a recommendation from the appropriate personnel but No such recommendation has been received at this point according to the HSE in a statement issued to LMFM. Now, this follows, of course, a claim last week being made by the Sinn Féin TDs in County Meath that the Emergency Department is to close as soon as April or May of this year. Let's speak to Local TD and the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's on the line. Good morning, Minister. Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Can you bring any clarity to this situation?
2: if i could just at the very outset michael just to wish you a happy new year and indeed to all of your listeners indeed and many happy
1: returns yes yes look forward, to, uh, speaking yes.
2: Yeah, look forward mm-hmm. to, to speaking and engaging with you in the year ahead so michael i mean on this issue i have been given assurances from the minister for health stephen donnelly as we would have heard last week and confirm uh, to colleagues locally as well that there is uh, no basis for these claims that this is not a decision that has been taken um, that the A&E is not going to close in April uh, and that has been made very clear to me. Uh, I know a number of changes have happened in the last week uh, in particular that Navin Hospital has come under the management of uh, the RTSI group so at the moment our hospitals are put into various different groupings across the country the Navin Hospital is currently in the Ireland East group which would include the matter and others the RTSI group is the group that includes Drogheda, Connolly, uh, moment and Cavan Hospital, and I think people will know for years Navin and Drogheda have really been very closely linked for an ambulance moves from Drogheda, or Navin attempts to mm. go to Drogheda. So that is the change that has been brought to my attention in the last week. Uh, the management has moved over for Navin to the RTSI group, so Navin is now included under the same management as uh, Drogheda, as Connolly, and again as I think people will be aware, if there were to be a change in Navin Hospital and in particular in the ED it would most uh, most of all impact Drogheda and Connolly Uh, and in the last year we have heard very clearly from consultants working in Drahada and those working in those hospitals that there simply isn't the capacity nor the ability to be able to take on those changes so that is the only change that has been
1: made
2: uh, that I have been making. Okay, that has happened in, in the last week. And but, and but,
1: but the plan, that that I, I don't think there's any disputing what the plan is uh, that uh, eventually or somehow uh, perhaps a better way of putting it the plan is uh, to replace the emergency department with a, a 24-hour medical assessment unit and as the HSE says the question is when uh, and uh, according to the HSE a, a date hasn't been proposed yet. Is, is that's that your understanding of it?
2: Well, I think we all know that there was a document written uh, some time ago and the document clearly indicated that Navin Hospital would change. However, my own belief, and I think that of a lot of people, is that in that length of time since the document was created, we've seen a massive increase in our population. We've seen a huge amount of pressure. Um, but again, back on Drogheda and those surrounding hospitals um, where we've had to increase the capacity there, where we've had to increase resources just to deal with that particular demand. Mm. And again, we heard last year from consultants who have clearly said that any changes to the emergency department would have a negative impact elsewhere. So, I mean, my my, my overall objective is always and has always been that people, whether they're in Mead, whether they're in Laodice or the surrounding areas, that they get the best outcome and that's Mm. where they need to go to a hospital that they have the right resources available to them. That's the the, the only objective that I have here. Okay. The the document you're
1: referring to though, Minister, that's the Smaller Hospital Network, uh, 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 which was published over a decade uh, ago. You're saying that's out of date uh, but the reason, or one of the reasons it it said that the hospital should be reconfigured is because the emergency department is not safe. Uh, That view hasn't changed. The view continues. uh, Amongst uh, the medics uh, that the emergency department in Navan is not safe?
2: Well, my understanding of the department um, in Navan and the ED department is that there have been a number of changes. We know that there have been a number of um, changes to the ambulance routes. So particularly if you have critical conditions, they have been diverted to Drogheda. So that has already happened. Um, I think it's working very well. And I think consultants and doctors uh, and medics in both hospitals Mm. are happy with how that has progressed. I know in Navan alone, they have had a huge amount of investment, so that wouldn't suggest that this is a a hospital that's going to be downgraded or or any less than it is now in the last two months
1: alone. There hasn't been any investment in the emergency department, though, Minister, and there is uh, the problem because therein lies the concerns. There's a particular concern about critically ill patients, uh, and I'm sure that there's fewer patients going to Navin for emergency care now because of the ambulance protocol. But what about patients who end up in the hospital who are critically ill. Uh, we heard uh, from uh, the clinical director, uh, Dr. Jerry McEntee, who said that those patients are not provided with the best opportunity of survival. Uh, what what uh, steps have been taken, uh, knowing that this hospital is not safe, uh, to make sure that all patients who are critically ill have the best opportunity of survival. Has any investment been made in the emergency department?
2: Well, my understanding is yes. Um, As I said, in the last two months alone, a new MRI scanner has been uh, put into the hospital and that absolutely links in with the emergency department. If people are waiting for an MRI, where you potentially have a critical situation, a person does not have to be transported to Drogheda. Yes, there has been significant investment in surgery, which you could say is separate. But at the same time, if somebody comes into the hospital, that they don't go through the ambulance and, and bypass Navin, that they're there uh, and there is surgery required. While a lot of it is managed surgery and um, surgery that you know people have planned, uh, there is an ability for other types of surgery to take place and then there's been investment more generally in the hospital and the infrastructure surrounding it um, so you know there has mm. been investment in the hospital and of course but you, but the you, bypass that was put in place only in the last year that was to make sure that those who are critical that yeah. they're not going into a hospital where, where they don't have the resources and it's the same and I probably discussed this with you before mm. if you have someone that has a brain injury you know exactly which hospital they're going to go to in Dublin if you have somebody that has cancer or where they need to be treated it's always about providing the best support but mm. my own belief is that we have such an increase in our population in the last number of years alone. Uh, we know the, re- the pressure that Throhada is under in Connolly to change this now mm. uh, and to remove the ED status in now okay. It would not be the right approach. Uh, in saying that, I will always do what is clinically best here for people mm. uh, where that advice is, is, is recommended. But I have not been made aware of any decision or any recommendation to close Navan ED, and I just want to be to be very clear about that to people that I've not been made aware, and I've spoken to the minister who has refer, who has reiterated that and said that very clearly to okay. me.
1: But but you you as a, a government were told a, a year ago that people could die unnecessarily because they were receiving treatment in Navan where they could have got better treatment elsewhere, uh, which uh, obviously. Uh, it is uh, something that needs to be taken very seriously. Nobody wants people to die un- unnecessarily. Uh, are, are you saying that you're satisfied that the necessary investment in the hospital has been made to prevent that uh, and that it can't be claimed that uh, critically ill patients won't have the best opportunity of survival in Navin anymore?
2: Michael, I I think you'll appreciate the difficult situation that we as politicians sometimes find ourselves in, because while that has clearly been communicated in a number of different ways, and as I've said, there have been bypass measures put in place and other investments, I have also received information from consultants in other hospitals saying if these changes were to take place, then you are potentially risking lives as well because of the demand and the capacity uh, restrictions or, or, or the capacity that currently been dealt with in Drogheda uh, and the consultants would have written that very clearly from Drogheda in the last year as well outlining their concerns if further changes were to happen so it is always about from, from my point of view highlighting these issues, highlighting these concerns, highlighting the fact that all hospitals here need additional investments, uh, require additional resources uh, based on that engagement last year alone we've seen an increase in staff to draw hospitals to try and deal with the challenges mm. that they face and, and how busy they are So I always listen to the clinical and the medical advice that is presented to me. Of course I do. But as a politician, I have to look at it as a whole. I have to look at my constituents, Mm. making sure that they get the best possible outcome. And when I have two sets of groups of people or hospitals saying that they are concerned if one change were to happen, the implications it would have, it's about me passing on those concerns and making sure that those making the decisions from a clinical perspective that people get the best outcome. That's the only thing that I care about here, mm. that if somebody is sick, if it's my own family member, if it's yourself or anybody, that you know where you can go, that you'll get the best yes. uh, medical support. Mm. and That's all that I want. And, and if, can, it's if it's Canada or Navin or beyond, you know, f- wherever it yeah. is that people
1: need to go. But I suppose that's the fundamental question. Can people in Mead in particular feel... Confident uh, that they will get uh, uh, an equally good a service as they would in Drogheda or elsewhere.
2: Well, we'd have probably heard people on this show, Michael, before saying that if it weren't for Navan, that they feel that they or a loved one might not have survived. And in fact, I've had people literally come up to me while I've been out in Navan or been in a shop and said that if it weren't for Navan, Ed their father or their loved one would mm. not have survived. So I, I think there's a view that the emergency departments and, and the people working in it have served Navin and the surrounding areas extremely well, and we want that to continue.
1: Is it At your the view, Minister? Time, I
2: know a lot of people will go to... I, I Absolutely, I think it has served people extremely mm. well in saying that there have been changes made for very clear reasons, and that is why if somebody is in a critical condition and an ambulance is called, they go directly to Drogheda, and it is because the particular resources that they need, uh, be it stroke patients or others, that that is in Drogheda. So it's about bringing them to the most appropriate place, but also making sure that if somebody walks in the door into Navan, that they are cared for in the most appropriate way there. Mm -hmm. Um, So this, you know, this would be... You know, This will be an ongoing discussion and it's about making sure from my point of view that both hospitals get the investment that they need and I know given uh, the changes with Sláinte Care while the management of Navin Hospital has moved into the RCSI group, at the end of the year there will actually be a further change so hospitals will now be put into regions so it will actually mean that Drahada Bowman, Connolly, and the matter will all now be back into one group and it's about making sure that that group of hospitals works in the best way possible for the entire region and for everybody in it including uh, in our own counties here in, in Lyth and Mead
1: Okay, the new year begins uh, pretty much uh, the way The old year rang out uh, with uh, another standoff uh, trying to prevent uh, people from moving into an old uh, building, this time in Ballinrobe in County Mayo. Uh, Do you believe uh, that the protesters will be successful and that those who are seeking international protection, those vulnerable people who are due to move into Gannon's Hotel today will actually move in or will, uh, as I say, the protesters be successful in stopping them from moving in?
2: If I could just say this at, at the outset, Michael, we have a rules-based system when it comes to immigration. Uh, and what that means very clearly is that if a person and and The Taoiseach said this yesterday, if a person is entitled to be here, that we will be fair. If they're not, we will be firm. And it is so important that where somebody comes to this country seeking international protection, that they are afforded the opportunity to do so and that they are provided with a roof over their head, but that anybody that needs a roof over their head, that they are provided with that uh, where possible. Nobody wants to see anybody sleeping in tents. Nobody wants to see anybody sleeping on the side of the road. Um, And so we have, as a government, tried to, in particular in the last two years, where we have seen a massive increase in people coming to this country, in particular those coming from Ukraine, where they have been fleeing a war, but also we have seen an increase in those seeking international protection. We have responded in a way that I believe is appropriate to make sure that people have a roof over their head, but that they go through the rules-based system as quickly as possible. So if you have a right to be here, that you are given that right as quickly as possible. If you do not, then you are essentially asked to return or that you're asked to leave the country. Uh, And that is the work that I have been doing as Minister for Justice, uh, investing in our immigration system, making sure that we can turn around applications as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, that does mean putting a roof over people's head and making sure that people are safe. And I think we all have an obligation here. We really do, each and every one of us, to make sure that those in our society, and I think it is still a small number, but a loud number, Who wish to sow division and sow fear and sow hatred in many of our communities, that they do not win, that they are not given an opportunity here to win. And the recent acts of arson that we have seen have been absolutely deplorable. Nobody has a right to damage another person's property or, indeed, potentially somebody's home. Uh, Arson is such a serious offence, it carries a very serious penalty and a very serious prison penalty. Uh, And I have no doubt that those who are responsible for uh, the fires that we've seen only in the last few weeks, that they will be held accountable. Gardaí have had uh, a series of uh, investigations underway and the Garda Commissioner has told me that they are progressing well. uh, And I really hope that we see uh, in the very near future people arrested and, and prosecuted for this, because we cannot allow this type of narrative to take hold, that this is okay, that this is acceptable, that this is in any way connected to an overall discussion or debate around migration, because let's Let's have that discussion, mm. let's have that conversation but don't in any way equate it and say that it is okay to burn out a building because people have concerns or potentially have concerns around migration.
1: Yeah, the owner you cannot
2: re- allow us to get to that point.
1: There were reports that the owners of the hotel had withdrawn from the contract uh, to uh, make it available to the department to house uh, international protection applicants uh, and could you blame them? I mean, if you had a, a property, uh, wouldn't you rather it lie idle than have, have somebody burn it down?
2: Well, I, um, I don't have confirmation as to whether this is moving ahead or not in this particular location. Um, mm. That's obviously a matter for the Department of Integration. But I do not see it myself personally as something positive that people are potentially being deprived of a roof over their head. No, but, but, and, but do you understand the point
1: I'm making that there's going to be fewer properties made available uh, uh, because you'd want to be off your head to uh, rent somewhere out uh, if uh, it seems almost inevitable that the place is going to be burnt down?
2: Well, what we need to send is a very clear message that this is not OK. Uh, and that's why Gardaí are working uh, around the clock, particularly in the two recent arson attacks that we have seen in Galway and in uh, in Dublin. They are working around the clock to make sure that those who are responsible, that they are brought to justice. Uh, And again, for people who aren't aware, arson is a very serious crime, which carries a very lengthy uh, prison sentence and penalty. Uh, And I think anybody who does this needs to see very clearly that there are repercussions at the end of the day. Uh, And I think that in itself would send a very strong message. So I have every confidence Mm. that Gardaí will do their job. Um, It is not OK. And and absolutely, I I agree with you. Uh, People must be concerned particularly if they have um, international protection applicants mm. there already. Uh, and I will repeat what the Dishak said again yesterday. I mean, we are all concerned. Nobody knows uh, whether or not somebody might be in a building if they're to set it a life, you know, a derelict mm. property, of a remote course, property. Yeah. Yeah. You could have anybody in their sleeping rough, um, you know, there for whatever reason. Uh, And that is, I think, a lot of people's concerns. So the message needs to be sent very clearly. Yes, let's have a conversation. Uh, Let's have a discussion around migration. Mm. Uh, We have seen hundreds of thousands, millions of people on the move worldwide. This is not new for just Ireland. This is across the globe. But let's never equate it to arson or say that this is... Uh, a reasonable response to the general debate that we're having, that we need to have and that I'm very happy to have with people uh, given the role mm. that I have and the responsibility around immigration and the, and the rules-based system
0: that we have.
1: But if we're to have a, a discussion um what are we discussing or or to what end are we discussing it because in Ballinrobe they say the protest is 100% local it is local people there are no people from outside involved uh, and they have not been encouraged by people outside of uh, Ballinrobe uh, to stage this protest Uh, But what needs to be discussed with people who don't want people moving to a a building? Uh, People that they know nothing about, people that they've never met, uh, but uh, have heard a lot of Chinese whispers about.
2: So there is a lot of information and can I say disinformation that has been put about when it comes to migration. So there are people who would want you to believe that we have no structure, no system, no ability to know who is coming in. But in particular, there mm. is a hugely damaging rhetoric that has been said and indeed been said in our own parliament that migrants are more likely to be criminals, that they're more likely to cause problems. All of this narrative has been put out there and it is there is absolutely no basis for it. And so from my point of view, uh, it's important to say to people, we do have rules, so we have a rules-based system. So if you are coming to this country in terms of uh, you know, looking for a job, if you are joining family members, if you're coming on holidays, if you're outside of the EU, you apply for visas, you go to a system, you get it, there are rules. If you come seeking international protection, there are also rules. So a person comes, they apply. Um, I have invested hugely in the last year alone into our international protection offices. So the number of people working there uh, has increased two or threefold so it means that we are turning around applications much more quickly Uh, and to the earlier point in the Taoiseach's point if you have a right to be here we will be fair we're turning around applications quickly if you don't have a right to be here then you will be asked to leave we have also introduced and I have introduced in the last year alone a number of new measures so people will be aware that there are people coming from particular countries um, where we have deemed them as safe countries So there should be no reason for someone to come seeking international protection. I have put in place a fast track system, which means that those people coming from those countries are getting their response within three months. In fact, quicker than three months. And most of those are getting a negative response and being asked to leave and they have left the country. So it's about making sure that we are fair, where people genuinely need international protection and need support and where they don't. That they are asked to leave and that they do leave, but this this disinformation that everybody's coming, that there are no rules, that people are doing what they want, that they're being handed a house within the first month, that they're more likely to be criminals—it's simply not the case. These are okay. people seeking a better life, and there is an onus and an obligation on us as a country, I think, to do what we can to support them and where we don't and where we don't have an obligation that they are asked to leave.
1: Minister, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD in Mideast. Michael
3: Michael Reid on on
1: LMFM. Uh, The SIFTU Trade Union has accused Blyden, which runs Tara Mines, of not acting in good faith. In fact, it says it has been underhanded in a tactic uh, that they have uh, described as being reckless. Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to John Regan, SIP2 sector organiser. And A uh, very good morning to you John uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. This is to do with uh, a package of uh, voluntary redundancy that uh, the company has made known to uh, employees. Uh, you did get sight of, of what it's proposing before it went to employees. Is that right?
4: Well look at Michael, just Um, sorry, there's a lot of feedback on this line. I don't know whether you can do something with it. I can hear myself coming back to me.
1: Oh, Um, uh, apologies, John. I'm sorry. Um, We'll try and get you on a a different line uh, and re-establish that and come back to you in in one second uh, to see if that's possible because there's uh, undoubtedly a a problem on that line, uh, which is very off-putting. We'll come to some of the comments now in the meantime. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch with us. First thing this morning saying it's very obvious that Israel is employing a scorched earth policy in Gaza. He says this is a tactic normally employed by a defending army that is in retreat, like Russia used it against the invading army of Hitler in the Second World War. Stalin ordered his retreating army to destroy everything of use to the advancing Germans. It worked, by the way. Uh, Netanyahu, though, uh, Paddy says, wants the Gaza Strip to become uninhabitable, so the surviving Palestinians have no choice but to move. Uh, Thank you indeed, Paddy, and indeed a very happy New Year to you. We'll come back to some more of those comments uh, in a a few minutes' time, but I think we have a a better line for John Regan. Thanks uh, for bearing with us there, John, and coming back to us. uh, I I was uh, saying uh, that you've taken exceptional uh, umbrage to the way Belayden has acted in relation to offering these voluntary redundancies.
4: Yeah, look, it's uh, it's disappointing, but not at the same time uh, a great surprise to us that the company are acting like this. They announced the closure uh, back in July uh, the very same way they went public on it. They sent us a document uh, very late Friday evening, and within an hour they had circulated the document into the national arena, and I presume you uh, would have got it... Um, And they they, they equally shared it with the employees, which, you know, we don't have a problem with that, but they only showed them half of the picture, uh, what I've been told. They haven't showed them the full document, the rescue plan. And that rescue plan, um, you know, uh, uh, when I read it, and I've only read it really once because it is uh, an absolute attack on the terms and conditions of employment of our members that have... Uh, worked tirelessly for over 40 plus years with this company Uh, our terms and conditions of employment have been hard fought and won uh, based on flexibilities, based on cooperation, based on meeting tonnages and this company is going after things within that plan that we have been down the road before that is not palatable to the workers out there uh, and the company will have to learn that uh, at the WRC probably tomorrow. Uh, but there's equally um, the Labour court recommendation that was issued to us last week. The company haven't confirmed acceptance or rejection of it, mm. which is crucial to all of this, because the court were very clear in what they made uh, a, a recommendation to the parties on. And that's that we go back to the conciliation on them four items. Yeah. The company now thinks that they can parachute their rescue plan in ahead of even confirming whether they accept the labor court recommendation or not. Right. So there's a bit of work to be done here. Now I don't want to have um, a situation where uh, equally within their proposal they are putting down major ultimatums. So for other for uh, for example, uh, the mine is not going to reopen unless they get a deal with us. Uh, So that's a big shift from their original reasons for going into care and maintenance. They went into care and maintenance on the grounds that the markets were not, uh, you know, they had collapsed and weren't, uh, it wasn't going to be profitable. But there's nothing in the rescue uh, plan uh, that talks about them things anymore. They're now talking about, which I believe is the real agenda, Uh, stripping the terms and conditions of employment of of workers there. Uh, And by the way, they are saying there'll be no redundancies either until they get that deal. So there's ultimatums uh, completely across their document, which Both parties have to move away from Mm, if there is to be an agreement here.
1: When you Uh, say there'll be no redundancies, I'm sorry, John, and that just confused me. Are you saying there'll be no redundancies other than the voluntary redundancies under the package that they propose without negotiation with the unions?
4: No, 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 no. No. They they have gone out looking for interested uh, parties to make it known, and they've given a deadline of the 30th of January for people to make their wishes known. Right Now, uh, uh, they intend to negotiate redundancy terms with us. They are flagging, and they are... Well, not flagging. They have produced a document on redundancy terms that was unilaterally imposed into the mine in 2009. The real uh, redundancy terms, we agreed them in 1999, and there's been, thank God, very few redundancies over the years. Uh But that redundancy package is not an agreed package. The agreed package is far superior uh, redundancy terms than what um, they're offering. But they're they're offering it in a way that all they're looking for is gaining uh, uh, information from the workers as to whether how many is interested. And they're going on in their rescue plan to say, you're not going to get any redundancy terms until we have an overall uh, operational rescue plan agreed and that could take uh, you know forever if they're going after every piece of term and condition that we have established over the years and agreed. They're looking at new hours, they're looking at shifts, they're looking at uh, a new start-up rate for a miner going in there. It is unbelievable what this company is going after. But it is also no surprise insofar as They are now planning for when they get into the new mine and they're stripping, they're attempting, they're going to attempt to strip back all the terms and conditions of employment to be ready to make all the profits when they get out and into the new mine. That's the new agenda. It has finally gone all circle as far as we're concerned. Uh, We now know what the real agenda is here.
1: And, And that was the motivation, you believe, for closing the mine?
4: Well, it certainly looks that way. We'll need to be convinced otherwise, and the WRC tomorrow uh, will probably get into some of that. Uh, But yes, that's what I believe. Their document has not been produced. They've got help to produce that document. It is not of the the local management's um, own doing, uh, which is fine. They're entitled to get assistance. They're entitled to get their uh, thoughts together in the plan. But they're equally saying to us, that there is more meat to go on this document. They've only shared part of it with us. So who knows what else is going to come out of when they finally get around to sharing the full um, plan and rescue of this mine.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but listening to your language uh, and indeed your tone this morning, John, I I take it that relations have hit their lowest ebb between Boliden and the union, so that we are now looking at the potential of a very protracted and bitter dispute.
4: I wouldn't see it that way, Michael. Uh, My apologies to people if my tone is wrong, Uh, but you do have to put yourself in our position uh, this document appeared on Friday late, Friday evening, and it went all nationally everywhere. Uh, and that's not the way we do business. It's uh, regrettable that the company have done that for the second time. They've done it as well when they announced the closure. Uh, they went publicly before they told their own workers. So they're doing it again. They haven't learned. Uh, but no, I don't see uh, us as having a great divide between us. I see a lot of work to be done here to get an agreement. But ultimately, the company has identified uh, June or the latest, the, sec- the end of uh, the second quarter to open the mine. That's, that's the, How are they going to get themselves uh, out of that situation? Um, you know, they can't, they can't keep dodging and keep pushing out dates. They have now said the second quarter and the second quarter ends in June, the 30th of June. So we expect the mine to be open well in advance of that, and we will be pushing to get that as and from tomorrow. Okay. And we will be uh, hoping uh, and absolutely committed to making sure we maintain the terms and conditions of employment that we currently have. There is an agreement under the WRC uh, that that would happen. So all workers must return under their current terms. But their document is saying nobody is coming back unless they accept the new terms.
1: Okay. Well.
4: That's a breach straight away of uh, another uh, part of the WRC agreement.
1: Okay. And, and the talks resume in the WRC tomorrow. Yeah, jo- and
4: we will be there to, to, to bring about an agreement. We've a hard job to do. Sure. It's not going to be uh, easy, get the company around to where we need to get it, but the ultimate uh, the ultimate uh, uh, ultimate position for us is to get the mine open and get people back to work we can have all the rows we like when people are back at work but that's where they should be
1: OK, John, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, we'll be following those uh, talks uh, and bring our listeners up to date as best we can in the coming days. And uh, indeed, thank you indeed uh, for that this morning. That's SIP2 uh, sector organiser John Regan. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, our phone number is oh four one nine eight three two thousand. You can text or WhatsApp your comment to us on 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on
1: LMFM This year we've been asking a number of questions about how Louth County Council has been carrying out its functions. We've been asking why Louth County Council disregarded legal advice given to it and pulled a motion from uh, the agenda of a County Council meeting without consulting with uh, the Cahirluc as was advised by a solicitor in writing to the council we've been asking why loud county council breached the local government act which says that uh, the Coherluck or the council or the corporate body or all of the councillors or whichever way you want to put it should be consulted before a motion is removed from the CLAR, the agenda of the County Council. We've been suggesting that Louth County Council has breached the Freedom of Information Act because of how it responded to LMFM. This is well rehearsed uh, for listeners who may have not uh, heard this story before a freedom of information request resulted in two documents uh Uh, being released, uh, then five documents being released uh, and then uh, we appealed it to to the Information Commissioner and that resulted in 892 emails being discovered. We contend that Loud County Council continues to be in breach of the Freedom of Information Act because we believe that there's more than those 892 emails and that there are texts and WhatsApp messages on the phones of uh, the officials. As a result of our report We have been accused by the Chief Executive of Loud County Council of damaging the professional integrity and reputation of a number of the Executive Board. Now, on Friday, the party whips on Loud County Council met to discuss the scandal that Loud County Council is now marred in. Uh, In advance of uh, that meeting, all councillors received a letter from the Chief Executive, Joan Martin. I'm not sure if that was to sway what way this will be dealt with by the councillors because Joan Martin, as the Chief Executive, is accountable to the councillors. In fact, the councillors have many very, uh, roots uh, in terms of how they may deal with this and there are various actions that they can take if uh, they believe that uh, the council has not behaved in a way that is appropriate. In the letter that Joan Martin wrote to the councillors she said that there were a number of keywords uh, that were searched that resulted in uh, the 892 emails and she says that uh, it's disappointing uh, that uh, the Michael Reid show and lmFL concluded that these records were items that we had failed to release or consider for release when, in fact, no examination of them had taken place. This is, at best, a misunderstanding of the law. And for councillors listening to us today, the simple fact is that whilst uh, there was no... Uh, obligation on the council to release all of uh, these records to us, they had to discover them. There's two things, discover the documents, then decide which ones to release. Uh, But uh, to say uh, that uh, they didn't have to discover them in the first place is simply not understanding the law. The email from the chief executive, Joan Martins, talks about 369 emails uh, that uh, were to private councillors. Again, all you had to do was discover them. You could say they're exempt from being released because uh, there were to councillors and not to the council. She says there were 218 uh, emails examined which didn't relate to the motion in question. Uh, well, perhaps then uh, that uh, is uh, something that uh, shouldn't have come up in the 892 emails. But that still leaves us with 674 emails. They say 275 of those are duplicates. So we'll take that off and that brings us down to 399 emails. But then they say that there's many more emails that have moved around the council system, sometimes many times, uh, and have been counted each time. Uh, And the end, Joan Martin says, we're left with a total of 30 different emails. Uh, But we're not. Uh, The 30 emails should have been discovered the first time around. By the way, when we say uh, there was two emails uh, discovered initially, then five we have not had sight of them because uh, they were under legal privilege. And we accept that because that's the law, because we respect the law. But under the law, all 892 emails should have been discovered. Maybe none of them should have been released. Maybe 30 of them should have been released. Maybe 10 or 20. God knows, but all 892 of the emails should have been discovered. Uh, And then it would have been up to the Freedom of Information officer to decide which were to be released uh, or not. As I say, the party whips met on Friday. We've been in touch with the chairperson of Loud County Council who tells us that in the coming days uh, she hopes uh, to be in a position uh, to discuss this with us on the programme. Paula Butterly uh, says she would like to get more information uh, about that uh, but it continues to be an issue and I think it's true to say from what I've been hearing it's an issue that will be raised at a minimum at the next meeting of Loud County Council. Michael,
3: Michael Reed. on Ella.
1: MFM. Well as you've been hearing uh, this morning uh, myhome.ie has released its latest quarterly survey and prices for houses in County Louth now stand at a medium price of €250,000 that's a 6.4% increase. There's a 1.8% increase on prices in County Meath where the median price is now €285,000 Joanna Geary is the Managing Director of MyHome.ie and she's on the line. A very good morning to you Joanna and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What's your uh, analysis of the prices uh, as things stand uh, because we're still looking at a huge demand for property uh, and very little uh, availability. Um, do the increases at the levels uh, that you're reporting today uh, come uh, as a surprise to you or is it more or less with what you'd have expected? Good
3: morning, Michael. Well, I, I think what we're seeing in this report is that really the market has been underpinned by a very strong labour market and very strong demand in a continued marketplace where we're facing constrained supply. So the housing market started to regain momentum probably from the summer months onwards with the national asking price inflation now at just over 4% as we finish the year. But we also analysed properties um, from the property price register, which also told us that the premium that people were paying on the final sale price was also 4% over the asking price in December. That would speak to um, quite a robust marketplace, albeit at lower levels than it would have been in the previous year, but that's not a bad thing if you're looking at um, jumping on the ladder in 2024.
1: Okay, and with the cost of living uh, crisis as some would describe it, uh, there has been opportunity for a lot of uh, employees And incomes are rising, and with that rise in incomes, house prices are increasing.
3: What you would typically see in a marketplace is that house prices would rise um, in conjunction with um, with wage rates. But actually, what you're seeing here, and some interesting data from the Revenue Commissioners um, post the budget last year, was that there's been a fifty percent increase in numbers. Earning in excess of 100,000 euro in the country. This has provided a pretty substantial tailwind that has uh, offset the impact of those high interest rates that we would have been seeing over the last 18 months or so. So, you know, we've practical full employment in this country. We have higher earners now paying more tax um, and feeling uh, more robust about their opportunities. So that's all uh, significant of the demand that's there.
1: And ex- there speculation, some, if not expectation, that interest rates will decrease.
3: Well, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with, with interest rates. But that being said, you know, the Banking and Payments Federation would tell us um, from a report they did back in October that the average mortgage approval in October was €297,000. That's a pretty significant mortgage um, level. That's up 6% in the year. That means that buyers are stretching themselves because they're now earning more and they're also taking on greater mortgage debt despite those interest rate hikes that we've been seeing. So I think people are feeling confident about the future. You know, let's see what happens with interest rates. You know, that would certainly, you know, if interest rates started to come down, you could expect to see asking prices start to increase again, especially because there doesn't seem to be any immediate end in sight to the supply issue that we have. Um, On my home, just 11,600 properties available for sale at the end of uh, December. Um, That's way down from where we were before the pandemic, um, which that figure would have been about €20,000 before covid so that you know, dramatic mm. drop in supply, 19% down in new listings in the quarter, um, would suggest that you have more people who are mortgage-ready, ready to go um, with higher-value mortgages from, from the Banking and Payments Federation that are chasing less stock.
1: Okay. You, so, don't, you, you don't see any immediate drop in prices, I take it?
3: No. All the market fundamentals would point to low single-digit price increases, asking price increases in 2024 um, unless something dramatic happens. But that certainly seems to be what the forecasters are pointing to at this
1: point. Very good. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Joanna Geary, Managing Director of MyHome.ie. Some more comments coming to us uh, today that I'll bring to you now. One from somebody who says, I can't understand why people would want to burn down anyone's home. We are all humans. We are all equal and we are all children of God. If you have a genuine concern, email email. A right to a TD or a minister, let them know your concern. Protest peacefully if you feel strongly enough about it, but uh, enough of the violence. The country is gone to hell, says our caller. Uh, some more colourful language than the one uh, I replaced that last word with, but thank you indeed uh, for your message uh, to the programme today. I can tell you there's a, a number of people in touch with us uh, who are full of venom, who can understand. Uh, why houses are being burnt down. And I, I think it's because of the venom in their veins. Anyway, thanks uh, for your uh, text uh, and uh, nice to get it too as well. We uh, won't be reading out those venomous messages as, uh, as always, um, but thank you indeed. Uh, on the issue of the hospital, someone in touch when we were speaking to the minister saying, come on, MacInty, uh, this is Minister McIntyre a population increase and letting everyone know uh, letting uh, people uh, into the country, uh, downgrade the A and lack of GP service, no beds and wards. Uh, how does she think uh, that uh, people are getting a safe and great service? Uh, well, uh, I think many people think that the emergency department in, in Avon pro, pro, uh, offers a, a great service, and that's why they want to keep it. Uh, the minister agrees. Uh, I'm not sure if our caller does. Deirdre and Kells certainly does. And she's always the first person to text uh, at the first mention of the hospital in Navin. She says it's a great hospital. If it wasn't for Navin Hospital, I wouldn't be alive. All they need to do is to pump more money into the emergency department. The population is growing in County Meath. Drada can't cope. Uh, Navin Hospital is so handy for me all I have to do is hop on a bus from Kells, Uh, it would be great if they had a a minor injury unit in it as well, thanks very much uh, indeed uh, for your message as always Deirdre, I think I've uh, some more here, Tom and Lloyd saying he was walking around to the park shop this morning to get his paper he says the paths, my god he says you couldn't walk on them with the black ice. Uh, the council should buy a quad bike and go around and do the footpaths and look after us elderly. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, We'd Margaret uh, in touch with us as well about the hospital in Navan. Margaret says, Is the government going to allow the HSE to create another Limerick hospital situation for patients in Meath, where overcrowding is rife? That's in Limerick, as a result of the closure of other hospitals. I believe the Limerick hospital is a centre of excellence, yet people are dying in it. Last week there was a family who had to take their dad out of it as a result of a very long wait, I think days, and they ended up bringing him to a private hospital. Has the HSE not learned any lessons? How many people are suing them? How come there's plenty of money to pay for investigations when someone dies and plenty to pay compensation to the bereaved families, yet there's not enough to put into the health service to run it right? It's time our health service was run properly. We have too many button pushers, and not enough on the front line where it matters most. How many at the top of the HSE are qualified medics? Just because something works on a computer doesn't mean that it will work in reality, says Margaret. Well, thanks for your message, Margaret. Uh, we'll have more talk about the hospital in Navin after this break. Michael,
3: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM and
1: Sinn Féin TD for me, the star in O'Rourke, uh, joins us. Good morning to you, Darren, and uh, thanks for joining us on uh, the programme and Happy New Year to you. Uh, yourself and Johnny Girk highlighted concerns last week uh, that you'd been hearing from senior management and from staff in Our Lady's Hospital that the emergency department is to close by April or May of uh, this year. The HSE has since said there's nothing in that claim and we heard from Minister McEntee this morning who reassured listeners uh, that there are no plans that she is aware of uh, to close the emergency department. Uh, do you accept all of that?
0: Well I, I, I take it at his value um uh, michael um and I, I do welcome the the clarification um i have to say it it runs contrary to what we had heard directly and i can say myself personally from senior management um uh, just over the christmas period um i had heard from uh, directly from a senior manager that it was their intention to uh, make the move in relation to Navan hospital coming under the RCSI group and to in their own words move ahead with the, the transformation um, in the first half of the year. Um, I have to say, when I heard that, I thought it was um, uh, a, a crazy decision. Um, I thought it was unlikely to happen, given um, how close we are to local and European elections. I just thought that's that's not going to happen. Um, but then, when both myself and Deputy Johnny Gork had heard uh, from uh, local representatives in the hospital, but also uh, workers there, that it was uh, literally a, a, a rumour or, or going all over the, the hospital. Well, then we felt that it was appropriate to highlight it publicly and to seek clarification in relation to it. Uh, uh, Deputy Gurk submitted questions to the Minister. I've submitted freedom of information requests. I, I, I appreciate that there are responses there now issued to yourselves. Um, from the hse and from uh, through local uh government representatives from from the the the, the minister but a, a couple of things um it is still a statement of fact to say that government policy and hse policy is to close the emergency department at Navan hospital the the acts still Hangs over uh, the emergency department at Navan Hospital, um, and that's an undeniable fact. Um, I mean, and that's that's, ri- that's
1: written into the HSE statement. Uh, they say that they haven't had a proposed date, uh, but uh, it, I think it's pretty clear reading the statement that it's written into it.
0: Yeah, and 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 that's a difficulty. That's 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 a, that's a serious problem. that... That I have, that Sinn Féin have, that others have in in the region. I certainly think that the vast uh, majority of the of the public have in uh, in in uh, uh, in County Meath and, and wider. Um, yeah. I think there's you know there is there's a political charge there that Sinn Féin are scaremongering with this story. We didn't generate this story. In fact. We didn't we didn't uh, run with it or raise it publicly until we had heard it from workers in Navin Hospital. I didn't uh, run with it when when I heard it from from senior management because, I, as I said, I thought it wasn't something that was politically deliverable in the time frame that they outlined. But the the difficulty the difficulty for and and I heard Helen McEntee on earlier on the difficulty for for Helen McEntee and for the government representatives who come onto your show and speak strongly in defence of Navin Hospital and what, and the A&E there, is that it is their stated policy, it is HSE's stated policy, mm. to close the, the, the A&E at Navin Hospital. And it has and, and been since a-
1: 2013, as uh, the Minister said in this morning's interview, but she said that an awful lot has changed since then. Uh, not to uh, mention uh, the increase in population, or, or to mention the increase in population, probably top of the list.
0: Absolutely. I, and, mm, and I agree mm. entirely with, with Minister McEntee in relation to that. The difficulty for, for Minister McEntee, I would say, is that could she get her government colleague, the Minister, Minister for Health, to come on LMFM and to say those same words? Mm, I, wonder. I, don't so. yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. I doubt it. Could she get the HSE management, who are, who are tasked with implementing government policy, to come on and say those same things? I don't think so. And, and that's the problem here, Michael, um, we need a change in that policy until that happens we will we will forever um, have the situation of uh, the rumor mill the the intention you know and, and the rumor mill is the rumor mill you don't know the the, the, the basis of it and and uh, you know rumors rumors get legs and all that sort of thing but ultimately the the basis for any of those rumors is that it, it, as as planned it is not a question of when, when uh, uh, it, it's not a question of, of if It's a question of when the A&E at Navan will close, and that's something that, in my opinion, cannot be countenanced, given, Mm -hmm. I think, the legitimate points that were raised uh, uh, by by Minister McEntee and so many others um, in terms of the increase in population. The need for it, the 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 um, you know the challenges are 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 Lady of. Rural okay, population. what about
1: the investment? Because that was one of the things the minister spoke about. Uh, do you, do you believe that uh, the unit has been unsafe, particularly for? critical patients who may not survive because of uh, the deficits uh, when it comes to being treated in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, And like Minister McIntyre, are you of the belief uh, that those deficits have been shored up and that sufficient investment has been made in the unit?
0: No, I I don't believe sufficient investment has been made in the unit. Um, And that would be entirely consistent with government policy and with the HSE's stated intention. Um, it makes absolute sense from their perspective that they're they're not continuing to invest in the unit because their plan is to close the unit. So, and we've had this conversation before, in terms of the issue of safety, um, if that's been raised by clinical leads uh, across the region, there's two options from the government and the HSE's perspective. You can either close the unit or you can invest in it to make it safe. Now, investing in... uh, uh, other services and surgical services, and investing in uh, scanning technologies and services at the hospital is not the same as investing in the A and E unit, in the uh, ICU and critical care units. And that's where we need to see the investment, if there is. And, and I would also make the call because it's difficult for all of us as politicians coming into this space that is a, a very clinical space um, and trying to argue with you know, uh, Jerry McEntee or whoever else it, it might be. Let's have the information there and make it public to people. So so, so, set out in clear detail what it would take in clinical terms to bring Navin A&E up to a safe standard. And and that doesn't mean, I don't think there's anybody arguing that, you know, uh, Navin A&E would be the equivalent of the Matter Hospital A&E. Or even draw a A and E, that the, uh, the, the, the hospital overall. What we want is uh, 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 an A and E that's fit for purpose for for um, a, a, a smaller hospital uh, to support the people in the county to uh, to pr- provide that um, life saving uh, intervention for people who live in close proximity to it. And that they can be stabilised, if if that's the case, uh, to move on to a, to a bigger hospital. And but I think it's very clear, and Johnny Gork outlined last week a, a number of of clear cases where, and I know them myself personally, um, where if Navin Any was not there in its current form, uh, individuals would have lost their life. And I hear time and again uh, this argument made in relation to safety, uh, and and I would raise the question. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've raised raised one for the HSE. and and maybe you'd pursue this yourself, Michael, with them, um, to set out very clearly what investment it would take to bring Navan Hospital A&E up to a standard that is safe. But secondly, to show us the evidence that closing smaller A&Es delivers better outcomes for people in 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 that area. So that so the suggestion here from the Well, I think that
1: that is uh, the objective of uh, that r- report uh, and the work of the consultancy team that published that report into the smaller hospitals uh, because you're not just talking about Downgrading the smaller hospitals you're talking about, uh, investing I- into the services that are stripped out in the other hospitals, and then also building up those smaller hospitals to provide other services.
0: But but to be clear, the the suggestion here is that the A&E uh, at, at Navan Hospital is not is is dangerous, mm. is not safe, yep. and that people. Uh, would be better, that first of all, it would be better off not being there and that people would have better outcomes if they bypassed NAV and A&E, it wasn't there, and that they went to uh, hospitals further away. they might
1: survive. Um, I mean, we're talking about a very serious concern. They might survive or they might not survive. We're talking about a matter of life and death, yeah.
0: But but let's be clear, Michael. They have done this elsewhere. They have have closed smaller A&Es around the country. Ask this simple question has that delivered better outcomes uh, for the people in in those areas? Now, individuals have studied this. So Professor uh, uh, John Brown in UCC, uh, Dr Luella Vaughan in the Nuffield Trust in in Britain, they have looked at the policy of closing smaller A&Es and the outcomes that are delivered for people in that area after those uh, A&Es are closed. Mm. And what they found was that the outcomes weren't better. The outcomes weren't better, okay. and, and, and 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 don't take my word for it. I think that's something that, as people in County Meath, we have a right to uh, challenge the HSE on their, I would say, dogma, their their uh, their their you know their their fixed policy in relation to this. And you know, if it, if it's the case that we're wrong, well and good. But I think when I look at the the evidence that's there in Ireland and internationally, and the closed first common A and are 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 there less? You know, are there mm. are there better survival rates from from cardiac events in Roscommon post that? No, there aren't.
1: Okay, so, well, the HSE has said very clearly, uh, as far as uh, they're concerned, there are no plans or there is no timeline, at least uh, being proposed at this stage, to close the emergency department. The minister, uh, she's not aware of any proposal to close the emergency department. Uh, I presume you're not going to tell us uh, the senior uh, m- m- uh, official that you were speaking to. Uh, and if that's the case, if you don't want to betray a, a trust, uh, can you tell us if you've gone back to that person uh, since uh, the HSE dismissed the story as such? Well,
0: well, well I, I won't, Michael, and you'll, you'll appreciate why, because, you know, uh, uh, you know, we build these relationships uh, formally and informally. And in fairness to, to, that, to that individual, they are at a very senior level. They're one of the, the handful of people that would have responsibility for delivering this. Um, uh, when, when they raised it with me, uh, they said, you know, we'll move ahead with transformation uh, because we have to. Um, I, I don't know whether they, they, they well, uh, my expectation is that they would support the, 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 the position Um, I outlined, you know, as I have to you this morning, that I thought it was um, uh, crazy and undeliverable, but also outlined where where I would be in relation to it, Sinn Féin would be in relation to it. Um, I haven't gone back to them, but I will. And and as I say, we have freedom of information uh, requests gone in. Uh, The difficulty in in all of this, Michael, is uh, that the stated policy is still the stated policy. And as you say, in the HSE's response, it is uh, still a matter of um, when, not if, that the uh, NAV and is, is going to close. And what I would like to see is for the HSE and government to answer the questions that I have raised today, but also to come on to LMFM at, a, at, at that senior level. And to st- and and, to, and and outline their plans in relation to to, to NAV and A&E, and, and I believe if they were challenged on those questions, it, it, that their position is unjustifiable and unsustainable, and it should and that fact should be reflected in government policy. 2013, the smaller hospitals framework. We're now. 11 years on from that. County Mead, the northeast region, is very different than it was then. Um, I I read in the Mead Chronicle last week that in Mead, they're expecting the population to be in excess of 240,000 by 2030. Um, The demands uh, and need for for NAV and A&E are are increasing, not decreasing. And I think uh, HSE and government policy needs to reflect that.
1: OK, well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always. That's uh, Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Mid-East.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
1: FM. As you've been hearing uh, this morning, uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has published a review of the enforcement of child maintenance orders. There's some 26 recommendations in this and uh, the most striking of all is uh, that uh, maintenance payments could be deducted at source by revenue or by unpust, or by social welfare, as the case may be. Let's uh, speak uh, to Louise Bayliss now of uh, the Lone Parent uh, Group. Uh, A very good morning to you, Louise, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There are undoubtedly a lot of people who are entitled to child maintenance who don't receive it. In fact, uh, you did a survey uh, on this uh, last year. Tell us uh, what you learned from that survey, if you would, please.
5: Yeah, it was was quite shocking. 35% of parents received maintenance and didn't have any issue with it. So only 35%. So that means 65% weren't getting maintenance. Um, There were 36% of parents were owed significant arrears. 23% never even bothered going near it because they knew it wouldn't be paid. And then 8% uh, of parents were owed significant arrears and were still going through the courts trying to seek it but significantly i think the saddest part were 36 parents were owed significant arrears and just had given up in the courts process
1: right um and it's not just the parents who suffer as a result because the money is intended for the child's welfare and upbringing
5: it's absolutely the children that suffer it's you know, social welfare will provide you the bare minimum to live. So if you're relying on, this, on the child's maintenance, it's massive. And like the average arrears we found when we looked at it was €8,313. Euro. There's a lot of people that would have made a significant difference over the years. That's children missing going to, to to other children's birthday parties. It's all those extra things that makes a childhood special. And 8313 of arrears... Outstanding. It's
1: just appalling. I suppose it's all of those things that we hear about when we discuss the cost of living crisis, whether it's heat or eat or getting a new pair of shoes or an overcoat or going to the pictures or some of uh, the simple things I- in life that elude people when they fall into poverty, because it's lone parents who are most likely to fall into poverty, isn't it?
5: Yeah, I mean, four times more likely to live in poverty if you're a child in a lone parent household. And that's an indictment of one of the major reasons is that we're not enforcing maintenance. We're not holding the two parents responsible and we're putting it on one parent. One of the things that really came up at the start of the cost of living crisis, the amount of lone parents who told us that their ex-partner automatically reduced the maintenance because they said they were facing the cost of living crisis, which absolutely is true, people were facing it their child was also facing it. Mm. And, you know, if you're living on the margins, what other parent would take money from their child to, to ensure their lifestyle wasn't impacted? Because I know there are many lone parents who are going to bed hungry at the moment because they're saying they are making sure the children have food. And, you know, come Tuesday or Wednesday before they get social welfare on Thursday, um, they are going without, and I'm saying social welfare. But even lone parents who are working mm. are, are really suffering. And in fact, that's been the, the increase. Of, like I think, St. Vincent De Paul did a survey back in 2018 or 2019. My apologies, and it showed that poverty among working lone parents doubled in the previous five years. So whether you're working or not as a lone parent trying to run a household on one income is really impossible and that's why child maintenance needs to be there to make sure that two parents are financially at least responsible for the child
1: Yeah and uh, I mean when maintenance is decided or agreed uh, um, it it should uh, increase or decrease I suppose annually in, in line with inflation shouldn't it?
5: It should do, and that doesn't happen. And, and when I've just literally gone through the report that came out there this morning, and there's a lot of really positive recommendations that a lot of we, which we would have fed into, you know, because mm. we, we met with the Joint Directors Committee and we met with the Child Maintenance Review Group, Judge Catherine Murphy, who was a very impressive lady, but also the Joint Directors Committee. They really took on board a lot of the recommendations we said. But one of the things that is disappointing in the report, no stage does it say that... that you know, that the maintenance payments will be indexed linked to the cost of living rise, so that if it, or inflation, that it would go up 2% every year or whatever. And that again is a burden and it means that people have to go back and forward. I mean, if you have a child of three or four, that payment shouldn't be the same in 10 years time and you shouldn't have to go back to court to get it done and i think it's something that was lost in this review but otherwise i'm delighted with this review i think if implemented Mm. it'll make a massive difference and it's something that we've campaigned for the last 10 years so it's a really momentous occasion for us today to see this report and i'm really hopeful for the children who will be impacted by this
1: OK, if that's a flaw, the percentage increase or uh, the, that, that you believe...
5: Indexation, yeah, yeah, yeah. inflation indexation. But, but, you but, know, I but
1: mean- an increase on top of what? One of the recommendations I, I thought was very interesting uh, is that there'd be a calculator uh, to uh, decide on, on what the payment should be
5: yeah that's that's really helpful because there is that and i and i do see from both sides of of the coin here you know the in camera law obviously is there to protect the in camera family law is to protect both parties and to keep the privacy and dignity of the family but it does lead to to misinformation and, and, and a lot of cases men walk away think they've been unfairly targeted and that they're paying too much and women thinking that they're not getting paid enough and nobody really knowing what's going on so to have guidelines there and to say this is clear this is transparent maybe it will help with compliance even you know if you know that well everybody's paying this amount this is the going rate to have a child so I do hmm. think that's a really positive recommendation
1: Okay but it, it couldn't be a one size fits all either could it because, I mean, no, you can't pay out not. money that you don't have and you have no low earners and not. high earners and all of that sort no,
5: of thing. No, I think uh, that the, cal- the way the calculator yeah. will be done, if it's done similar to other countries like New Zealand, um, Australia, other countries who are, have these systems in place, it is based on the parent's income and the needs of the child. So, you know, if, if a parent is on social welfare, that child is not going to have the same lifestyle as somebody whose income the parent is earning 100000 that's unfortunately the reality for those children. It can be only based on the means, but it should be based on a percentage of the income and ensuring that the child gets their basic needs met.
1: And if you go back to the 36% of parents uh, in your survey who are owed significant amounts of maintenance uh, but have given up, uh, they've yeah. gone down the legal route. Uh, they've been in the course but they've given up. Uh, this review will be very welcome, I-, I take it, because if adopted, there'll be no way out. There'll be no way of uh, deciding not to make the payments if it's taken out of your wages by revenue or by social welfare, as the case may be.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the 36%. It's the 23% who never bothered even going into court because they'd heard from other people how demoralizing it is and just gave up. So it's all of those people. And the 8% who are still currently going through the court, court system. So there's a significance. If you think about it, only 35% were actually getting maintenance and getting it paid regularly and on time. So there's really 65% of people in lone parent families who could benefit from these recommendations. And that's massive and it's really to be welcomed. It's, it's something really that could be a significant game changer for why lone parents are so disproportionately poorer than other families in this jurisdiction. And this could be a key tool to helping. So it really, I can't stress how happy mm. I am to see the report today. It's a long time coming and there's been a lot of work gone behind the scenes to get it, but hopefully it will make a significant change in the life of children going forward. I'm really hopeful of that. And also I think it will hopefully take out the animosity in families. Sometimes, you know, we've been really unfair to families Mm. you know when they are separating we've been you know i just for instance when a child turns seven and the parent goes from one parent family to job seekers transition a man would have got a letter saying you're no longer to pay maintenance under the liable relatives provision from the department of social protection because that legislation didn't carry through to job seekers transition but at the same time when the mother In the majority of cases changed from one parent family to job seekers transition she would have been called into the department of social protection and told you need to pursue maintenance well at the same time the father's after getting a letter saying under social protection you you're not obliged to pay us um, and that pressure on a woman to have to go and seek it and a letter has the man has a letter and you're causing conflict mm. when the the system was working so there were all these loopholes that were causing conflict yeah, in and,
1: and we we all know of couples who have been at each other's throats over maintenance but it's always, yeah. it's always the child that suffers um, that
5: suffers Yeah. And and actually, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, the maintenance is linked to access and there's this whole kind of confusion Mm. around Mm. it and it should never be. And I think that finance always does that. But if you take out the financial conflict, I think there's more reason for a, a happy relationship between both parents nobody feels they're being hired done by the maintenance is being paid, it's being paid at what the father can now see as a transparent and fair rate, and then a relationship can build up, and actually the international research has shown, where a parent is paying maintenance regularly they're more likely to have a positive relationship with the child, and I think that has to be seen, so it's not just the financial well-being, the well-being of the relationship between parents who aren't the non-custodial parent, and that has to be important for children too
1: Okay, Mary has texted and she says Michael I can't believe that we're still talking about this lone male parents have got away with not paying for their children ever since they were born all left on the mother. I know a mother, she says, who had two children, never a penny paid to her from the father of those children, who is a very wealthy man. It's disgusting. How can he do that to his own flesh and blood? And it is very sad, Michael says. Mary, and I'm sure that uh, reflects uh, the situation a number of people find themselves in listening to us today. So what next do you know, Louise? Uh, Because, uh, I mean, while all this uh, is very welcome in principle, uh, when will it become... uh, a reality. What has has to happen for that to happen?
5: Okay. Well, the first report that came out was the Child Maintenance Review Group, and that was came out last November, November twenty two, and we know that one of the recommendations from that was that social welfare would not assess child maintenance as means and allow the payment go directly towards the child. That legislation is currently going through the It's a pre-legislative scrutiny, and we're hoping to have that enacted. We had hoped to have it enacted before Christmas, but it looks likely that it'll be in the first quarter of this year. That in itself will make a huge difference because there are a lot of people who are losing half their maintenance to social welfare, or in even worse case scenarios where they're being deducted from social welfare and they're not even receiving the maintenance. So that'll make a big difference in it. And then the other parts of it, it it seems to be an ongoing group I wouldn't see it happening this uh, this year, but, you know, we as a group, the National One Parent Family Alliance, will work hard together to, to keep pushing this and hopefully get it implemented within the next year.
1: OK, well, thank you indeed, Louise, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I should mention that Spark is a member of the National One Parent Family uh, Alliance and Louise Bayless there, who is co-founder of Spark, that's single parents acting for the rights of kids. Michael Reed on, on LMFM. As you've been hearing uh, this morning, uh, the latest eyeball survey has uh, been published. Uh, that's uh, the Irish businesses against litter. There's 40 areas uh, that have been surveyed uh, in this uh, league and if we look at uh, the three local towns that come under the survey, there's Drogheda at 24 clean to European norms. There's Navin just behind it at 24 Again, clean to European norms, but at 39, close to bottom of the list, Dundalk littered which is very surprising given the success of Dundalk in previous surveys. Let's hear a little bit more. Conor Hogan of Ibal, the Irish Businesses Against Litter, is on the line. And A very good morning to you, Conor, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, is there any explanation for how Dundalk has gone from close to top of the list to bottom of the list?
6: Yeah, indeed, Dundalk did top our rankings uh, some years ago, Michael. Um, it is the case, I mean, we've seen it rarely, but um, it is the case that just for a number of years, the town can be in the doldrums. Seems to be the case with Dundalk. It's actually improved slightly from its mid-year position when it was seriously littered. It's now littered. I mean, if you look at the report, the reason is clear. There's just not enough grade a sites not enough clean sites they were the red barns approach road and dundalk train station and the clump park and playground they were the only sites and that were clean and three sites out of ten just is not enough in our rankings towns have moved on from that that might have been okay 20 years ago but now we have towns that have nearly grade a sites throughout um, so in in Dundalk, there was a litter black spot at the Recycle Centre on Castletown Road. Um, Clan Brassel Street was seriously littered. The Link Road uh, to Bridge Street, seriously littered. Um, and a number of moderately littered sites. So, um,
1: mm-hmm. And you're, you seeing, know, littered, you're seeing a new phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, it's not that long ago we were talking about face masks and other COVID things. Uh, you're seeing vape-related litter now.
6: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't overstate it, Michael, but it's definitely on the increase. We talked about it, I think, in the summer. And since then, we've seen further increase. Um, One in every 10 sites we survey, and we survey like hundreds and hundreds of sites across these towns. One in every 10 showed vape litter. And that's double the amount we were seeing in 2022. So um, Mm. we spoke about how harmful they are. Some people feel they should be banned. I think our findings strengthen the case for that.
1: OK, well, Navin has pulled its it socks up uh, and it's maintained that effort, I take it.
6: it. It has. Unfortunately, we've spoken before about St. Patrick's Park, Michael. That was, again, a litter black spot. Um, heavy levels of dumping have taken place. A deterioration from a site which had some small improvements in recent surveys. It wasn't just casual litter but household waste. I'm quoting there from the Antashka report, that brought down Navin's uh, ranking. So um, any town that has a litter black spot, it's not going to be in the top 10, put it that way. Mm. But ne- nevertheless, credit to Navin that there was lots of good there, lots of grade A sites, Emmett Terrace, Trimgate Street, Preston Place, Navin Shopping Centre, the Devlin Approach Road. Um, all uh, clean to European norms I and think much were, improved compared to previous surveys.
1: I think there was a special mention for Preston Place, wasn't there?
6: Um, there, there was. Preston Place um, was cleaner than previous surveys and minor items were, were present but um, not to the degree to bring down the overall litter grade and there was no fast food litter associated with nearby McDonald's. So, you know, it's just good to see improvements and we have seen lots of improvements in Maven. It's just been dragged down by this one bad
1: site. Okay, Uh, an ongoing problem, as you say, at St. Patrick's Park. All right, uh, to Drogheda then uh, and uh, the improvements that have been made in that town have been sustained uh, as well.
6: They have. It's still, I mean, and it's great to see Drogheda, um, which improved because it got a lot of bad press, I know, when it was towards the bottom of our table. Again, it's hard to to understand why a town that was riding high in our chart a few years ago should have declined as it is, as it did. But nonetheless, um, sites not just good with regards to litter, but very well presented and maintained. They included the River Quarter and West Street, very attractively laid out. Um, there was there was some uh, anti-litter notices at the Recycle and Brink facility on King Street. Um, there was some improvement at Marley's Lane, but it was the only heavily littered site this time around. So, you know, that's a positive, I guess, that there was only one really bad site yeah. and lots of good sites.
1: All right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the recycling centres, uh, I think, in all of uh, the three towns that uh, you survey locally and I take it that's a a problem around the country and I think one of the reasons or possibly one of the reasons for that is uh, that the use of CCTV was prohibited Uh, but councils should be able to return to using CCTV now at those sites to deter littering
6: Yes, and we are seeing an improvement in those sites across the country. I mean, they were typically magnets for litter, and we'd have lots of litter black spots, which were recycle centres around the country. That is changing. I also think they've being managed better. I think I find personally, for example, if you visit the bottle bank, say, a few days after Christmas, previously you would have no chance of, of leaving your bottles there. Mm. But they, they, they seem to be emptied more regularly than previously. So, And there was a need to manage them better. I think that's happening
1: okay uh, and uh, is enforcement uh, part of the problem where there are problems?
6: we don't see enforcement as being particularly effective uh, Michael you can't if you look at the, the statistics I think'll we'll tell you that of you know the court cases brought forward very few of them um, lend end up in prosecutions and as a result local authorities are understandably reluctant to take people to court for littering offences. It's hard to get evidence, the plain truth of it.
1: Okay, well, 25 uh, of uh, the 40 towns are clean to European norms. That's not a bad thing, Connor.
6: No, it is good and um, also, I mean, the the margins at the top are tight, so um, the difference between 25th and 1st isn't all that great. Our job is to get all the towns clean and we're gradually getting there.
1: Very good. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us. Conor Horgan of IBAL, the Irish Businesses Against Litter. That's our programme for today. Maggie Maguire Research, Chris Murray was of the Control Tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.